Chapter 5 of The Falcon on the Baltic. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Falcon on the Baltic by E.F. Knight. Chapter 5 on the Zouder Zee. My stay in Amsterdam was short. I arrived on Monday evening and was off again on Wednesday afternoon. The weather was very hot and well adapted for seeing the sights of the commercial capital of Holland and smelling the smells of its canals. As these canals, or grokten, crossing each other like a spider's web, in concentric circles and diametric lines, divide the city into nearly a hundred separate islands. It is impossible to get out of the way of their noisome exhalations, and yet Amsterdam is, I believe, a very healthy place. It is evidently not the stink that kills. I found much to interest me in this northern Venice. I am not sure, by the way, that this title has not been copyrighted for Stockholm. Its general appearance is more strikingly original than that of Rotterdam. Built as it is entirely on piles and having no more solid foundation than sand and mud, its houses in their uneven subsidence lean out of the perpendicular at all manner of angles, some hanging over the streets, some falling backwards. There is one large building just in front of where the falcon was lying, which had sunk so far into the bowels of the earth that its gates and ground floor windows had completely disappeared. While returning on board late at night, I came upon one broad straight street of lofty toppling houses. The street was paved and had no doubt once been level, but now the ground was split by great cracks and rose in hillocks or fell in deep hollows. The ray of the moon fell on the white walls. There was not a soul besides myself in the street, and all was quiet still. The effect was strangely weird. It would not have required a great effort of the imagination to suppose oneself in some city over which an earthquake shock had passed, and which had been destroyed by its inhabitants. I believe that even in London, men returning home late after dinner occasionally came across streets which present this same tottering and wavy appearance. To ward off any imputation that I had dined too well, I may mention that I passed through the same street on the following morning, and that it then appeared to me no otherwise than it did overnight. Amsterdam is, I think, the only dirty place in Holland. Not that it is very dirty, it would be considered a clean city in most countries, but it is quite foul in comparison with other towns in this morbidly clean land. The Jewish quarter, which is well worth strolling through, is the dirtiest portion of the city. Here the picturesque slovenliness and the filth of the east appeal to eye and nose. These squalid streets and alleys, with their numberless Fried fish shops and old clothes stores are thronged with a crowd of unwashed, but often singularly beautiful people of decided Hebrew type. The very skewits that trade on the canals of this district seem to me to be wanting in the usual Dutch polish and look dirty. But there is quite as much wealth as dirt in this Jewish quarter. The Jews have always been an important body in this tolerant city. Here dwell the famous diamond merchants and polishers of Amsterdam and the numerous fine synagogues, rich in golden vessels, attest the prosperity of the chosen people. On Tuesday, while exploring the Rick's Museum, I fell in with a friend, and in accordance with my rule already explained, I took him with me to discover what Amsterdam could produce in the way of a good dinner. We tried the Bible Hotel and were satisfied with the result. We also visited some of the principal cafes, which being vast, magnificently decorated and lit with the electric light, and even finer than those of Rotterdam. On Wednesday, the 15th of June, we started at 2 p.m. for the Zagerzui. 
As we were getting underway, we saw a large steam yacht coming in, flying the RTYC Burgee. We were told that she was the Rionagnamara. The Y or harbor of Amsterdam is an inlet of the Zuiderzee. In order to protect the city and its canals from an encroach of the sea, a huge dam has been constructed across the Y at Shellingwood. This dam, I quote Bedecker, is one and a quarter miles in length and has five locks, the largest of which is 110 yards in length and 22 in width. There are 56 ponderous lock gates, the two heaviest of which weigh 34 tons each. This will give some idea of the gigantic scale on which work of this description is done in Holland. It was a very hot day with a cloudless sky and a light wind. We drifted slowly to the great dam and entered one of the locks in the company of several traders. The outer gate was opened, we passed through, and were afloat at last on the Zuiderzee. We were glad to be free of the tedious canals for a time and to cruise once more on broad water. What small amount of wind there was came right aft, and we contrived, to the gratification of our pride, to run away from all the skuits. As we came out of the estuary of the Y, the view of the Zuiderzee was a singular one. The heat had produced a thin haze, which did not obscure but surround objects with the golden atmosphere. Seawards only, the horizon was not visible. There the sky and water mingled in a beautiful sunlit mist that Turner would have loved to paint, while distant fishing vessels seemed to be floating in the air. Along the shore we were following, stretched so far as the eye could see the massive grass-grown dike, above which rose here and there red rooftops, steeples, and trees. Farther still, a tall church spire stood out of the waters like an island, the low land round it being beneath the horizon. This, from its bearings, I took to be the church at Horn. I started from Amsterdam without troubling my head as to what port I should put into for the night, for my chart showed me that there is a large choice of harbors all around the Zuiderzee. True that most of these are silting up and can only emit fishing boats in such small fry, but then the drought of the falcon is under three feet, a fact we were grateful for when on this very shallow sea, where the greatest depth in the center is a little over two fathoms. We steered to the northward, keeping close under the shore and about six feet of water. The wind, still very light, now headed us, so it was evident that we should not get far before nightfall. At about six o'clock, we opened out the little island of Markin. Between this and the mainland is a channel two miles broad with only four feet of water in it, and at the head of a small bay opposite the island is the town of Monaghan which is about 15 miles from Amsterdam by water. I decided to bring up at this place for the night, so we sailed into the bay where the water gradually shoaled till we had only two feet under us, a foot less than our own drought. But we contrived to drive the yacht on without oars in quant through the deep mud, which was almost as yielding as the water. This, we, we discovered, was a common method of navigating the Zouder Zee. There is no possibility of foundering under such circumstances. The little town presented a pretty picture on this quiet summer's evening, with its quaint gabbled houses, its background of green trees, and its flat-bottomed fishing craft lying alongside the quay or the canal. Of course it has its canal, what Dutch village has not. There came to us from the shore the sweet scent of the new mown hay, and the sound of cackling hens and lowing cattle, and the noise of children just let loose from school that sounded pleasant and homely to our ears. We pushed on through the soft mud till we reached the quay which was already crowded with wondering people, 
and here we stuck comfortably in the slime, with only a foot or so of water around us, so that it was scarcely necessary to take warps on shore. This night our weary pump had a rest, for her bed of mud gave the falcon an excellent black wall caulking. No sooner were we alongside than a man came down to the quay and spoke volubly to us for some time. We could not understand him at all, so he tried signs, and showing us a handful of stuivers, pointed to the yacht. Had he taken a fancy to our vessel, and was he making a bid for her? Evidently, Wright took this view, for he called out indignantly, It isn't enough, mine here. The man stared at him for a moment, then de despairing of our intelligence, he hurried off, and soon returned with the pompous little fellow in spectacles, who I believe was the schoolmaster. He was able to speak a little of a language which he called English. I don't know what it was, but it sounded stranger to our ears than the other man's Dutch. I do not know how it was managed, but between these two individuals and various members of the crowd who occasionally put in the suggestions, our dull brains did eventually grasp the idea they were so anxious to convey to us. We understood that the first speaker was the harbor master and that he wanted our ward warfridge fee for Stuivers. I gave him his fourpence and he departed happy. I think this was the only port we visited in the course of the cruise in which we did not come across someone who spoke English. We found the small boys somewhat of a nuisance in Monacondam, but this was nothing to what was before us. As I shall shortly have to explain, the shores of the Zouder Zee produced in large quantities the most troublesome urchins of all Europe. Happily, it is the custom to pack them off early to bed, so at any rate we were able to sleep comfortably through the night. On the following morning, we were awakened by a familiar sound on the quay above us, the cry of a milkman. They called it milk here, so we turned out and bought a bucketful. In every Dutch port, the vendors of milk and eels, and often the butchers as well, would thus visit us at an early hour to solicit our custom. On studying the chart, I perceived a dot right in the middle of the Zouder Zee, in which represented the little island of Urk. A lonely island on the sea he happens to be navigating always has a fascination for our yachtsman. So having before me as a further inducement the fact of its lying on my way to Zwartzlaus, I decided to sail for Urk. The morning was sultry and calm, and there was no wind at all until 11 a.m., when a light air sprang up, but it was right ahead. Seeing that it was not possible to reach Urk that day and having had enough of Monacan Dam and its boys, we punted the yacht through the mud out of the bay and made for the opposite island of Marken, which was visible about three miles distant. Every tourist who goes to Amsterdam is obliged to visit Marken. This is one of the rules laid down in the tyrant guidebooks, and it must be obeyed. In vain, I rose in revolt against this law and tried to sail elsewhere. The wind, which was in league with Badecker, would not have it so, and I had to submit and go perforce to Marken. The island possesses a small artificial harbor with not more than four feet of water, which, however, is quite enough for its fishing boats and for our yacht. We tacked across the channel, entered the harbor, and made fast to the quay, which, to our surprise, was deserted. Were there, then, no boys in Happy Marken? I looked round me and saw that there was only two or three houses near the quay, for the village is towards the middle of the island. Marken is inhabited by a race of hardy fishing folk, the most primitive people in Holland, who still go about in costume and fashion with their forefathers 300 years ago. The island has been much written up of late, and is visited by tourists, and has therefore become a recognized show place, and its inhabitants run the risk of losing their simplicity and being considerably spoiled. The natives, 
soon found us out, and first of all, the harbor master came down to us for his wharfage fee of two stewards per ton. I then left Wright in charge of the yacht and proceeded to explore the island on foot. Markin is rather more than two miles long. It consists of flat pasture land, intersected by little ditches, and it is, of course, surrounded with a dike. There is a church and a neat little village of tiny old wooden houses huddled up close to each other, with no streets between them, but narrow paths only, a plan conducive to coastiness in the long, hard winters. The men were away fishing, so I only came across women and girls, who were all dressed in the picturesque and becoming style of their great-great-grandmothers, and several of whom, though, built much after the model of the native scoots, having their greatest beam at their waist, were decidedly pretty. The girls of Markin have beautifully fresh and clear complexions, and many a one of these fair, plump faces, with its on its blue eyes and golden curls falling coquettishly on either side of the close-fitting skull cap, would have made a very pretty picture indeed. I returned to the yacht and found that a skewit had come into the harbor with a party of Dutch tourists from Amsterdam, who were being personally conducted by what seemed to be a native cook on a small scale. And now I saw that the primitive islanders had acquired some of the tricks of civilization, even such as are practiced by the simple mountaineers of Switzerland. For no sooner had the tourists stepped on shore then down trotted to the quayside three pretty little maids of eight or nine, with their yellow curls flying behind them. They were not dressed in their everyday clothes, but in the gorgeous Sunday costume peculiar to the island. They had not even completed their toilet before starting from home, for they were assisting each other to arrange a ribbon here, or haul taut a refractory lace there, as they came along. They seemed very much amused and very proud of their finery, as they stood hand in hand, in a row on the quay, blushing and smiling archly and looking up occasionally with shy eyes at the strangers of the city. The little humbugs. It was so obvious that their mothers had hastily dressed them up and sent them down for the inspection of the innocent tourists, as specimens of the famous Markin medieval costume, on the chance of earning a few stuvers. And the children certainly did not return empty-handed to their shrewd mamas. Later on some of the fishing boats came in, manned by sturdy, clean-shaven men whose dress, if not so splendid, was as old-fashioned as that of the women. They wore tight-fitting black jackets, black skull caps, and black knickerbockers of too Dutch voluminousness, while their well-stockinged feet were thrust into loose sabots. Save for the sabots, it was very oriental-looking get-up, and its light can be seen in any Turkish city. In the evening after we finished our dinner, I believe that all the girls in Markin were down at the quayside, drawing buckets of water to carry home for that last journal wash-up of everything, which is never neglected in a Dutch establishment. They stood on the wharf chatting and laughing and peeping into our cabin with the curiosity of their sex. As fresh-featured, pleasant-looking, a lot of blonde lasses as one could wish to see, and very smart too in their bright-colored frocks and snowy linen. I did not mind the girls. I may as well confess that I rather liked their presence, but by and by school broke up, and down to the quayside ran all the naughty boys of Markin. We suffered a terrible perse persecution at their hands, so that the tender-hearted girls pitied us and rebuked, but to no effect their unruly brothers. The Hollanders spoiled their children, never punished them and allow them, provided they don't play the truant from school, for education is a serious business in this country, to do pretty well as they like. Should a stranger, my authority is one of our consuls over here, take it upon himself to spank one of these little rascals, 
for throwing stones at him or otherwise misbehaving himself, the whole of the parents of the locality would rise in a body and seek that stranger's blood. A Corsican vendetta would be child's play to what he might expect. If you value your life, put up with insult, robbery, blows, torture at the hands of a Hollander infant, but do not venture to chastise him. Of all the children in Europe, the Dutch child is most to be feared. Now the Zouder Z child is the most terrible of Dutch children, and the Marken child is the most terrible of the Zouder Z, and hence of the whole species. Our position can therefore be imagined by any father of a large family. These small ruffians stood on the quay and reviled us in unknown tongues. They hurled stones at us and also bricks from a convenient stack. Bricks are very dear in Marken and are imported here by sea, and yet the owner of those bricks, who happened to be standing by, contented himself with a timid remonstrance, but dared take no stronger measures. As we could not defend ourselves, we dissimulated, pretending to be altogether unconscious of what was going on. Then, as our persecutors waxed bolder, we smiled at them with an affection of amiability we were far from feeling, for infanticide was in our hearts. But the most pathetic smile fails to move the ruthless mark and boy to mercy. At last, a fisherman who spoke a few words of English took compassion on us. He came on board. I will show you where you go was better go, he said, not to have bad children alongside. They was very damn here, the children. This good Samaritan piloted us to the other side of the harbor, where we lay more to some stakes. You stop better here, he said. Not many boys throw so long as this was. But some few of them could throw as far, nevertheless, and worried us occasionally. And let me warn yachtsmen who visit Markin that the boys are not sent early to bed here, as they are in most, most ditch villages but are permitted to stay up and annoy the poor foreigner half the night. Some people pay blackmail to these brigands, but that makes matters worse unless it, it be done in a scientific manner. Had I been able to speak Dutch, I should have picked out some half dozen of the strongest boys and offered to give them sixpence each on the morrow in consideration of their thrashing the other boys and keeping them quiet during our stay. I mentioned this to Wright. It's a very good plan, sir, he said. And then after, we'd set them all fighting like Kilkenny cats. We could sail away tomorrow morning without paying them their sixpences. That would have been a sweet revenge, indeed, for all our ill treatment at the hands of the children of Marken. But alas, we knew no Dutch and found it impossible to make delusive promises and pantomime. But I must do Marken the justice of saying that its women are charming and its men kindly honest fellows. Somewhat subdued in manner, perhaps and sad visaged. But what else can be expected of a people who are groaning under the heartless tyranny of an infant democracy? The wind howled dismally through the night, and on turning out the next morning, we found that a fresh northeast breeze was blowing. We set all sail and escaped from the island before its demon boys had left their beds. My intention on starting was to cross the Zouder Zee to Urk, but when we got clear of the lee of Marken, we encountered a very choppy sea. The water was leaping round us not into waves but into pyramidic lumps like sugar loaves urk was dead to windward of us and we first put the falcon on the port track she didn't seem to be making much way against this lop remarked wright after a while and she certainly was not it doesn't look much like getting to urk today i replied we'll go about 
She'll just lay up the coast on the other tack, and we can put into Horn or some other port if the sea and wind don't go down. We'll be well to windward at Horn, and if the wind is in the same direction tomorrow, we can fetch Irk easily from there. So we put the Falcon on the starboard track and followed to coast to the north ward, traveling very slowly, for each of the short, steep seas slapped the yacht violently in the nose and almost stopped her way altogether. However, we staggered along somehow, with much more noise and motion than speed, our decks constantly wet, and we came to the conclusion that if a moderate breeze like this can raise so nasty a sea on the shallow Zouder Zee, it must be a very uncomfortable piece of water when a strong gale is blowing. It has a reputation of being so. Luckily, the currents are feeble, the rise and fall of the tide being almost imperceptible hereabouts, else this would be a very dangerous sea indeed. After two hours or so, the wind headed us so that we had to tack, and the sea became so confused that we missed days several times in getting about. We stumbled on, that is the best term to describe the boat's motion on this day, through the muddy water, past the monotonous stretches of the dikes, until about 1 p.m., where we perceived the town of Horn before us, almost hidden by the branches of its many trees tossing in the gusty wind. We passed through one of the two channels that led to the harbor and made fast to the quay close to the picturesque old water tower, which dominates the town and serves as a landmark to vessels far out to sea. The usual crowd gathered on the quay above us, and an old woman commenced to address us. She became quite angry when she found out that we could not understand her, and she began to scream at us at the top of her voice, heedless of the fact that we were not deaf but merely ignorant of her language. Had it been a man, we should have jumped at the conclusion that this was the harbor master demanding his fee. But what could this irate lady want with us? Having failed utterly to explain herself, she suddenly seized her clamor and beckoned me with her bony hand to follow her. Her air of authority was such that I dared not refuse. I crawled on to the quay and did her bidding with a sinking heart. She led me through the street in silence till we reached a small house. The door was open. Again she beckoned. I hesitated. Then she seized me by the hand and dragged me in. A crowd of inquisitive boys had followed us, so she slammed the door in their faces and I was left alone with this mysterious woman. Her next proceeding was to unlock the drawer of a fine old carved oak bureau, of which I envied her even in that moment of trepidation. From this she took out a small book, which without saying a word she placed in my hand. I opened it at the title page, and lo, it proved to be a French-Dutch dictionary. It was shrewd of the old lady to have thought of so excellent an interpreter between us. I consulted the pages and pointed out to her the Dutch equivalents for the words, What want you with me? She opened the book in her turn, and following her finger with my eyes, I read in succession the two words, Huit su. A light broke on my dull intelligence. I hastily turned over the dictionary again and showed her the uncouth Dutch word that stood for harbor master. Jaw, jaw, she cried, laughing and slapping me on the back. We understood each other at last. This was the harbor mistress after all, so I paid her the four pence and she allowed me to depart. Horn is one of the most pleasantest looking towns I saw in Holland. It is pierced by numerous canals, all crowded with craft and bordered by avenues of fine trees. In its streets are many quaint old gabled houses, and it has preserved all its original medieval appearances without being by any means a sleepy and stagnant place, 
for it is garrison town and its public ways are full of life and color. And yet Horn is one of the most famous dead cities of the Zadar Z. I was prepared to see ruined houses and grass-grown deserted streets, but there was nothing of the kind in this tidy, busy settlement. It is the most lively dead city imaginable. As for the grass-grown streets, tourists in these regions, whose imaginations run away from them after reading Harvard, sometimes speak of these. I doubt that they exist in the deadest Dutch city. True that at Urk, which is not a dead city, I saw a tuft of grass in one of the streets. I stood and looked at it in wonder. How could neat Dutchmen tolerate such an eyesore? Now there happened to be a native sitting in front of his shop, smoking his huge pipe placidly. His eye followed mine. He saw the dreadful thing, started, blushed deeply, and hurrying to it, plucked it up by the roots. Then he looked at me sadly, as one who should say, I would not for many barrows of herrings that you, a stranger, had seen this thing. But though what remains of Horn is alive enough, especially its boys, it is a genuine dead city, for it was once a far more considerable and important place, being the ancient capital of North Holland. And Cape Horn, which was first doubled by Scouten, was named by him by after his native town, then a flourishing seaport. I looked into my Bedecker, and there read that in 1573, a naval engagement took place off Horn between the Dutch and the Spaniards, when the admiral in command of the latter had taken prisoner. Late in the afternoon, I was sitting on deck smoking, and as I gazed across the yellow Zadar Zee, I was thinking how ridiculous it seemed to associate the idea of a naval action with that shallow water, only eight feet deep in the neighborhood of Horn when I saw a sight which made me leap to my feet and rub my eyes. Was I dreaming, or was I looking at phantoms? For I beheld two men of war making straight for the harbor. One was a full-rigged ship, and the other a very beamy iron-plated gunboat, with no mast to speak of. The ship was a very old-fashioned build, and the other an ugly modern steamer. They approached slowly side by side, good representatives of the new and old styles. The ship furled her sails and came to an anchor off the entrance of the harbor. The gunboat steamed right in and brought up alongside the quay opposite of us. These vessels had doubtlessly been constructed expressly for the Zadar Z defense and must have a light drought. The clumsy ship stuck fast in the mud when she got under way the following morning, but the gunboat tugged her off again. Possibly the former always accompanies the latter for this purpose. I have made no mention of our pump lately, but it must not be supposed that it was at all idle, for the black wall caulking of the Monacan Dam had been washed out in a very short space of time by the choppy waves of the Zadar Zee. This very necessary apparatus had got completely out of order. Its India rubber valves were worn away by much friction, and on this day it definitely refused to pump at all. Now ours was not an ordinary or garden pump, which is as good as any and it easily put to rights, but a patent arrangement, and therefore exceedingly difficult to mend. I doubted whether the tankers of Horn could restore it to its pristine condition, so I thought it best to take the job in hand myself, and, instead of repairing it, convert it into an entirely new pump on the good old garden system. I cut a valve plate out of a piece of hardwood, and then, as I required leather to complete my job, I sallied forth to procure some. I soon found a cobbler shop, entered, and endeavored to explain my wants. A piece of hard leather, 
for a valve and a soft piece with which to serve the piston. Some leather like this, please, I said, pointing to the sole of my boot. The cobbler put on his spectacles, seized my foot, and closely examined the boot, evidently under the impression that I wanted him to repair it. But as there was nothing amiss with it, he looked puzzled and shrugged his shoulders. Vor de pomp of de ship, I cried. This ought to be good Dutch, if it is not. He seemed to understand me at last, and motioning me to wait for him, he went into an inner room and shortly returned, bearing in his arm a great load of every description of foot coverings, ranging from a dandy's patent leather chasseur to a fisherman's sabbat. He threw them on the floor before me with a gesture that said, Take your choice. No, no, I said, shaking my head. Then what the deuce do you want? he cried impatiently. I don't know Dutch, but I could swear that was the signification of his words. I was about to retire in despair when I noticed that a policeman was standing in our doorway, smiling grimly to himself. Our eyes met. What is it that you want, sir? he asked in English. An interpreter had arrived very opportunely on the scene, and now the cobbler and myself were about to carry on our negotiations. This policeman had been for many years in the employment of the General Steam Navigation Company, hence his acquaintance with our language. Having procured the leather, I set to work before an admiring crowd, and soon put the pump to rights again. On the following morning, Saturday the 18th of June, we started at 8 p.m. for Urk. This island is only 25 English miles from Horn, but we were so unfortunate with our wind that we must have sailed three times that distance. The weather was glorious, and only a few small fleecy clouds, very high up, crossed the blue sky. At first the wind was northwest, but it did not remain long in that favorable direction. It gradually freshened up and blew right in our teeth. We put the yacht first on one tack, then on the other, but whenever we went about the wind would veer round also and head us. We were pursued by Vanderdecken's ill luck. However, it was very pleasant sailing, and the sea, though choppy, was not nearly so rough as on the previous day. At midday we were in the center of the Zadar Zee and out of sight of land. I brought up my sextant and took the latitude, an operation I imagine very rarely performed on these waters. Later on the atmosphere became very clear, so that we were able to distinguish in several directions the summits of far-off steeples and the isolated tops of the trees. It was exactly as if we were looking over a country that had been submerged by an immense flood, for no land was anywhere visible. In the afternoon, the wind dropped, and there was only a slight ripple on the Zadar Zee. We progressed very slowly until about four o'clock. We perceived on the horizon, right ahead of us, a group of red lumps, which we knew must be the reefs of Urk. As we approached it, the tiny island, its size is not quite a third of that of Markin, presented a curious appearance. There rose, seemingly straight out of the sea itself, a row of little houses dominated by a church and lighthouse. To the right of this village was a dense forest of pole masts, each with its long pennant streaming to the breeze, showing where the fishing smacks were lying in the commodious haven. In the whole of the shallow, tideless sea was dotted with a vast number of other skids, all making for this harbor as fast as they were able with sail and oar. Urk, diminutive though it be, is a most important fishing station, and a population of upwards of 2,000 is here supported solely by this industry. This was the very day to see Urk at its liveliest, as all the fishermen flock home on Saturday and stay in port till Sunday night. The scene reminded one of a hive on a summer's evening 
into which all of the working beasts are hurrying laden with the spoil of the day. As the harbor seemed to be already full to its mouth, I did not care to venture within, for I feared that the boats that came in after me would block up all the available space to prevent my getting out till Monday. Again, I preferred to rely on the mercy of an open roadstead than to risk persecution at the hands of diabolical boys. So our anchor was let go some fifty yards from the shore in about eight feet of water. We found that the bottom consisted of hard sand and gravel. This considerably surprised us, for we did not expect to find stones anywhere on the muddy Zouder Zee. I thought we had anchored over the remains of some ruined dike or flood-destroyed village. There are so many such in Dutch waters, but I believe that Urk is one of the few places in this half-liquid land where the solid earth that lies beneath asserts itself and sends forth stony offshoots to the surface. As we had only tin meats on board, I went on shore in the dignity to buy stores. I pulled between the piers into the harbor and was astonished to see so many fine oak fishing boats lying in tiers along the quays. The letter on their bows told me that they all belonged to the Urk. I do not think that any other place of its size in Europe can boast of such a large fleet. On landing, I found myself the center of an admiring crowd of what appeared to me to be the strongest and healthiest people I had ever come across. The men in their baggy trousers, tight jackets, and broad belts looked like a race of giants possessed two of hard and wiry frames that few giants are blessed with. The buxom women were proportionally tall and broad and the children were far too robust to be otherwise than terribly naughty. When I looked at the boys, I was glad that I had left the falcon outside. The men seemed well disposed to strangers. Many of these sturdy fishermen had fraternized with our sailors at, on the dogger bank and understood something of English. Two or three of them piloted me to a little shop where every commodity that the people of Urk require can be purchased. But fresh meat is evidently not considered unnecessary here for they all shook their heads and laughed good-naturedly when I spoke of it. I could have as much salt pork as I liked, but beef was an unknown luxury. Just then, very opportunely, a hen began to cackle, and the sound inspired me to ask for eggs. The good lady of the shop sold me a large number for ten pence, but they were the smallest eggs I had ever seen. I met some of the fowls in the street and saw they were proportionate in size to their island which the men certainly are not. And now bade Urk farewell, a proceeding that lasted some while, for all those who had joined in the procession that had followed me round the village considered themselves to be my friends and came up to shake hands at parting. During the night, the wind blew on shore so that we tumbled about at our anchorage a good deal. The sky was wild and crossed with mare's tails, and to all appearance, we were in for an unquiet night. The wind moaned dismally, as it always does in Holland, on very small provocation. In this country, a stranger finds his meteorologic wisdom much at fault at first, for the weather has a habit of looking worse than it really is, especially when there is any north in the wind. Then, even in midsummer, there comes suddenly over a fine sunny day, chilliness, a hazy bleakness, a wintry howling of wind that dismays the imagination and leads one to believe that a storm is imminent. On the following morning, Sunday, June 16th, we resumed our voyage across the Zouder Zee immediately after breakfast. Bad weather had not followed the threatening signs of the previous evening. It was another sultry, cloudless, and almost calm day, 
and the light wind was again right in our teeth. We tacked in an easterly direction, intending to sail round the north end of the island of Shockland, which lay between us and our destination, the entrance of the Zwart water. For two hours we saw no signs of the land towards which we were sailing. Then we perceived a line of yellow sandhills to the north of us, the mainland near Lemmer. But ahead of us, toward the rising sun, there was a dazzling glare on the water, and a mirage which prevented us from distinguishing anything, save here and there a phantom-like skewet, greatly magnified by the heated atmosphere, and appeared to be floating in mid-air. There was a considerable ripple in the sea around us, but it was different to see how it was caused. The surface of this shallow Zouder Zee seemed to be sensitive to the slightest breath of air. So feeble was the wind that after tackling with flapping sails for nearly four hours, we had not left Urk more than two miles astern, and the only sound to be heard on this quiet Sunday morning was the persistent clacking of the hens of that island. But about midday, a nice northwest breeze sprang up, and setting our tan score sail, we began to bow along at a good rate. At last we sighted that commonest landmark of the Zadar Zee, a steeple, bearing southeast, and we ran down toward it under the impression that it belonged to the church of Shockland. But we were mistaken, for Shockland and its low buildings were not yet visible above the horizon, and we were really looking right over the island at some lofty town spire on the mainland far beyond. After running on some way farther, we saw three small hummocks, like three separate islands ahead. Then, as we approached, we perceived a low, sandy coast connecting these three hillocks, and we had no doubt that this was the island of Shockland before us. This island is very narrow, but it is three miles long. It seemed to be an almost barren sandbank, with few houses on it, and not many fishing boats in its small harbor. We gave the north corner a wide berth, for the water is very shallow round Shockland, and indeed there is but little more than six feet anywhere between it and the mainland. Having passed the point, we sailed into an extraordinary labyrinth of tall sticks that puzzled us a good deal. At first, we thought they were intended as marks for the different channels, but we soon decided that there were far too many of them for that purpose. These sticks were planted close together in double rows, which stretched across the water in every direction, as far as the eye can see, like so many streets. There must have been some thousand of them in sight. They were doubtlessly the stakes to which the fishermen might attach their nets or lines, but it seemed strange to find such crowds of them stuck right across the fairway of vessels. We could now plainly distinguish the mainland, and we made out the Kragenberg lighthouse ahead of us. The Zwartwater River empties itself into a very shallow bay, across which, from the mouth of the river, a deep channel known as the Zwalsh Deep had been dredged for four miles out to sea. This channel is bordered on one side by a pier, at the end of which is the Kragenberg Lighthouse, and on the other side by a submerged embankment of stone marked by big beacons. The wind was now freshening every moment and a nasty sea was rising, but we ran on merrily under all canvas, and at last rushed suddenly into smooth water under the pierhead, and we had done with the Zouder Sea. End of chapter 5